Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figi Nwati. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Concerns over worsening humanitarian situation in Lake Chad Basin. Burundians reject United Nations report on human rights. And controversy erupts in the Sutu over government's new fleet contract. In economics news, Algeria plans bank privatizations as oil money dries up. And in sports news, sundowns to face Zamalek in CAF Champions League final. But first up, the news with Dan Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussan. Authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo say 17 people have died during a stampede in the town of Beni. Residents fled, believing they were under attack by a rebel group. The mayor of Beni, Jean Edmond Yonet, says the incident happened when a drunken soldier fired four shots, causing panic. Reports say some people drowned when they jumped into a river. Four were killed in various incidents and one person died from hypertension. Somali parliamentary elections have been postponed for the second time in two months, this time due to a dispute over how to select future members. Voting for the 275-seat parliament was scheduled to start at the weekend and end on October the 10th, with new lawmakers set to appoint a president on the 30th of September. Facing an ongoing threat from the Al-Qaeda-linked Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, Somalia abandoned plans for a one-person, one-vote election. Instead, about 14,000 people representing federal states from across the nation will choose members of the Legislative Assembly. Canada has confirmed it's aware of a citizen being taken hostage in Libya. It says it's pursuing all appropriate channels to obtain more information. Libyan authorities last week said that a Canadian and two Italians were kidnapped in Libya's southwestern desert, possibly by a criminal gang. The three victims are working on airport projects. They were abducted between the towns of Hat and Tahala, near the border with Algeria, last Monday. South Africa's opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has urged universities, the education department and police to work together to ensure students and staff are safe on campuses as the week starts. Academic activity has been suspended at several tertiary institutions in South Africa due to violent student protests. The students are demanding free education. The DA's Shadow Minister of Higher Education, Belinda Bozoli, disagrees with the governing party on the way forward. Although the student cause is a very good one, it is not a good idea for universities to close. And I'm appalled that the Minister for Higher Education, as well as Gwedi Mantashi, have actually suggested that universities be closed, even for long periods, in order to teach the students a lesson, to use their words. This is not appropriate. Students need to be heard, 
and they also need to be able to study. And I call for the rule of law to be applied here. Anyone who's performing in any illegal act needs to be a call to account. And finally, Zimbabwe's Environment, Water and Climate Minister Opa Muchungui says her country wants the removal of restrictions on the listing of its elephants for trade in ivory. Briefing the media at the CITES Corp 17 conference in Santon in Johannesburg, she said the earnings would be ploughed back into conservation. Muchungui says Southern Africa has two-thirds of the continent's elephant population, 83,000 of which are in Zimbabwe. In this regard, Zimbabwe stands in solidarity with Swaziland on its proposal to trade in rhino horns. Zimbabwe does not support the proposal to encourage the banning of ivory and rhino horns. It is our view that banning of ivory devalues the elephants and rhinos as their tusks and horns are part and parcel of their DNA and should always be respected as such. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, and it's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live on this Monday, September the 26th, Winima Tigizela Mandela's birthday, which is the 270th day of 2016, with 96 days left in the year. In our top story, Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Jan Eliasson, says one of the world's worst humanitarian crises underway in the Lake Chad Basin is struggling for attention. Nine people... Nine million people urgently need humanitarian aid across the region, with some 6.3 million not getting enough to eat. On the margins of the UN General Assembly debate, leaders from the region got together to discuss what needs to be done to improve the situation. Daniel Dickinson reports, his report begins with the words of Jan Eliasson. This is one of the worst crises in today's troubled world and still regrettably It has struggled for the world's attention. The Lake Chad Basin region in Africa incorporates four countries, Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Nigeria. Centered around Lake Chad itself, it suffered the cumulative effects of poverty, climate change, environmental degradation and increasingly conflict. The terrorist group Boko Haram has been a major factor in the region's decline. Here's Idris Deby, the president of Chad, speaking through an interpreter. Lake Chad and the region is currently experiencing one of the most tragic pages in its history since the advent of Boko Haram. Over 20,000 are dead since 2009. There is mass destruction and displacement. Human travel and trade, agricultural and pastoral activities have been interrupted. The Boko Haram insurgency began in the northeast of Nigeria. A regional military task force has been driving the insurgents out of areas they previously held. The president of Nigeria, Mohamedou Buhari, described what's been found in some of the liberated areas. As a multinational joint task force is recording great success in degrading Boko Haram, we are witnessing the emergence of rescue survivors and victims 
hitherto under the brutal oppression of Boko Haram in the northeast of Nigeria. These victims have been subjected to modern slavery, kidnapping, sexual violence, and forced marriages. And he explained the ultimate impact of conflict and climate change. The dual impact of climate change and terrorism has created deeper implications for peace and security, social harmony, and sustainable development goals. The president of Niger, Mohamedou Isufu, said military action was a short-term solution to fight terrorism. But speaking through an interpreter, he said a different approach was needed in the future. Long term, the solution rests with economic and social development. The people of the Lake Chad region must be supported. Operational actors and donors must assist in the economic growth and income producing projects to support the young women. We need to support livestock, fisheries, community infrastructure, as well as health and education assistance. And the UN has been giving that support, but it says more money is needed. Here's the UN Deputy Secretary General, Jan Eliasson, again. Early recovery and development investment is badly lacking. Today, the four humanitarian country teams of the affected countries called for $542 million for life-saving humanitarian aid for the next three months. This revised amount is more than the original projected total for the year. I call on donors and partners to rally behind this plan, which promises new hope for the desperate people of the Lake Chad Basin. And let this meeting be a signal to everybody to now do our best to put the Lake Chad Basin situation and the people of that area in the center of our attention. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. Thousands of Burundians took to the streets on Saturday across the country to say no to the recent UN investigators' report on, human, on the human rights situation in Burundi, a report which links the country's security forces and the youth wing of the ruling party to gross human rights violations. The government of Burundi says the report was produced on the basis of false information, urging the United Nations to reject it. Bernard Bankukira reports. It was a particular Saturday, not like others, an unprecedented day with a massive mobilization against the United Nations investigators' report on human rights situation in Burundi. Thousands of Burundians were called to the streets to decry the report which accuses the government of gross human rights violations attributed mainly to defense and security forces in connivance with the Mbonerakura youth wing of the CNDDFTD ruling party. Several high officials, particularly from the ruling party, led the protests in all 18 provinces with placards and slogans denouncing the content of the report. In Bujumbura, protesters included senators, members of the lower chamber of the parliament, various state officials and ordinary people who decried the report, hailing the bravery of the embattled president Pinokronziza. Marchers crossed several streets and made a stopover before the office of the UN Human Rights Commission in Burundi. Terence Nairaja, Assistant Minister for Home Affairs, said the objective of the protest was to express their grievances against the report, which, according to him, 
is characterized by biases. He calls on the United Nations to decline it. The objective is to denounce this wrong report produced on the basis of rumors and false information for the few investigators sent by the UN Human Rights Commission. They relied on radical opposition opinions. All what has been done in Burundi, reports produced by the judiciary, for instance, the one produced by the Attorney General, nothing is in. There are testimonies of some youths who surrendered to the government from armed groups. None of the messages is in. We urge the UN to reject this report because it does not reflect the reality on the ground. They have to understand that in the future they should not endorse lies. Following a worsening situation that prevailed in the country as a consequence of the unrest that resulted from President Kurunziza's decision to vie for a third controversial term in office, the High Commission of the United Nations Human Rights appointed three independent experts in January 2016 to conduct an independent investigation on the human rights situation in Burundi. A report was produced on September 20, 2016, causing fury among the country's leaders and the ruling party. Among key accusations contained in the contested report include the government of Burundi to use the security body, the National Police of Burundi, the National Intelligence Service, the National Defense Force, and the youth of the ruling party in Banerakure against political opponents to carry out some of the serious violations of human rights and a general crackdown against civil society, torture, sexual violence, arbitrary arrest and imprisonments, targeted killings of opposition supporters, among others, are some of the crimes reported by the UN investigators. For the government of Burundi, this report ignores achievements made on the ground, achievements recognized by government partners including the Office of the UN High Commission on Human Rights based in Bujumbura. Martin Nidabandi, Human Rights Minister, says the report is more likely politically fabricated rather than a technical one. He explains the report is based much more on information drawn from the reports of some organizations which provide distorted and exaggerated information. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. Let's go back in time to today in 1976. Leaders of five black African nations declined to accept plan present a plan presented by Rhodesia's Prime Minister Ian Smith to achieve black majority rule in Rhodesia. That was today in history in the year 1976. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A controversy has erupted in Lesotho over a government fleet contract awarded to South African company Bidvest. The NEC of Prime Minister Pakadi Temusisidi's Democratic Congress says the process was corrupt and the contract should be terminated. But the Minister of Finance, Mambono Kaketla, also from the DC, says it was approved by the coalition cabinet and due process was followed. Ntakwanangatane has moved from Maseru. Lesotho is governed by a seven-party coalition government. The Minister of Finance from the biggest partner, Democratic Congress, D.C., has awarded a fleet management tender to Bidvest. 
but her party DC called a media briefing to announce its standpoint that the tender process was corrupt. Refilo Dijobo is the Deputy Secretary General of the Democratic Congress. We really see the number of issues that you can say there is a corrupt con- conduct in this transaction. Therefore, we cannot support anything that is corrupt, that, that has got a corrupt conduct. Therefore, we cannot really support the bid first transaction, that business transaction at all. Yes, I mean, Avis was only taking 1% of the GDP uh, of our economy. It was paid roughly 33 million, 35 million per month. Uh, Bidvest Bank Limited is taking that between 62 and 64 million of our, our national purse. That means it's really exorbitant for Basutu. It's really heavy on the shoulders of Basutu to, to maintain that. It's not sustainable anyhow. The finance minister, Dr. Mampono Hakita, is also the party's treasurer. She's accused of taking and offering bribes to award the tender to Bidvest and ordering police to arrest, torture and kill whistleblowers, some of them youth leaders in the D.C. Haketa has filed a defamation suit against her accusers. She says she has not seen the party's statement and she declined to comment until she does. She was also not present at the briefing, even though as treasurer she is a member of the NEC. Democratic Congress says it does not have the power to discipline its members who are deployed in government, and only the Prime Minister can do that. But the party has a duty to stand up when its principles are transgressed. It's only ideal that the party that is leading the government should be the one really uh, ensuring the checks and balances or balances of how the government is run. Yeah, you see, we have made promises. People bank uh, on us. They believe that we can effect a change in terms of really cre- creating jobs for the youth. The unemployment is really skyrocketing in this country. We have a number of problems that are pressing uh, in our communities, local communities, like we have no roads, we have no water, we have so many problems, social problems that the communities are expecting the the, the, the government to deliver. So if we can uh, just go like that without telling the communities that what you see happening now is not DC but certain individuals who have been given a responsibility. Also not present at the media briefing were party leader and prime minister Bagadita Musisidi, presumably because he's attending the UN General Assembly in New York, deputy leader and minister of police Munyane Mulelegi and secretary general Ralichate Mokosi were also not present. But the DC insists it is not divided. Dichobo again. This is a big organization that has got its own norms of doing things. We have got our constitution and it stipulates that all the resolutions of the NEC are binding. So there is no one who can come in here and say he disassociates himself or herself from the resolution that was made in a city, a formal sitting of the NEC. And uh, of course we don't have Uh, divisions in the committee. Last weekend, coalition parties organized a march to deliver a petition showing support in the Prime Minister. The DC says it made a decision not to be part of that march, but did not prevent any of its members from attending. DC leader and Prime Minister Bagadi Tamusisidi accepted the memorandum of support from the march and addressed it. Meanwhile, his deputy, Munyane Muleleki, addressed another rally where he condemned that march. 
What started as a complaint about a fleet management contract has developed into stark differences of opinion in the ruling party. But the question is, is the Democratic Congress showing political maturity and freedom of expression or falling apart? Only time will tell. I'm Takwanangadani in Maseru, Lesotho. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says regulated trade in ivory could yield huge socio-economic development benefits for those residing in national parks and conservation areas. The President was addressing the opening ceremony of the Global Conference on the Regulation of Trade in Wildlife and Endangered Species, CITES, in Santon, north of Johannesburg. Wildlife experts from around the world are meeting to draw attention to recent dramatic declines of wildlife populations due mainly to poaching and trafficking. Tsepoe Kaneng has more. For 10 days, the CITES COP17 meeting will tackle 62 different proposals coming from wildlife experts around the world concerning some 500 species. Most of these proposals seek greater protection for endangered species. African elephant and rhino populations continue to decline sharply due to illegal ivory trade. Demand for rhinoceros horn mainly across Asia is driving the species toward extinction. Among controversial proposals are the demands by Namibia and Zimbabwe to leave the ban on elephant ivory trade. The argument is that legalizing ivory trade would allow stockpiles of confiscated ivory to be sold, flooding the market with ivory, thus reducing demand and illegal poaching. Opponents say this strategy will not work to save the species. President Zuma has called for a well-managed and monitored legal trade in ivory and other endangered species. The illegal trade in wild, including poaching, presents significant challenges and threats to the environment, including undermining the potential benefits arising from legal trade that contributes significantly to socio-economic upliftment and development. It also affects communities, destroys livelihoods, and aggravates crime while entrenching poverty in communities with limited resources. President Zuma says government will continue to support and prioritize efforts to keep rhino and elephant poaching. Despite increased pressure, Due to poaching, South Africa hosts 70% of the world's rhino population and 30% of South Africa's white rhino population is in private hands. South Africa also prides itself on its retention of its position as the last bastion of the rhino. The president has also emphasized the need for increased investment in wildlife conservation, arguing that it contributes significantly to socio-economic development of poor and rural communities. Natural resources do not only sustain livelihoods of communities. They are also critical in promoting economic development. Examples of this include the lawful trade in wildlife, including the practice of hunting, which is criticized by many. The hunting sector in South Africa generates well over 1 billion rand a year. 
The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species CITES was established in 1975 as a protection mechanism for wild animals and plants against over-exploitation for commercial purposes. in Johannesburg. African conservationists want their governments to speak with one voice during the CITES meeting in Johannesburg, South Africa. They say the survival of various species will be affected by decisions taken during the summit, which began on Saturday. Sarah Kimani reports. Delegates from 183 states which are signatories to CITES will for 12 days deliberate on whether to allow or restrict trade in various species. Conservationists say science rather than short-term economic interests should inform decisions. They want African countries to speak with one voice and shun what they term as narrow national interests. Kadu Sabunya is the president of Africa Wildlife Foundation. What is really ex- expected of us at, at CITES is we would like to hear the African voice. Uh, this is, I think, a very great opportunity uh, that Africans we bring our aspirations, our voice, what do we want out of this meeting and, and speak as Pan-Africans on the interests around our wildlife and wildlands conservation. So will you be hoping that all African countries speak with one voice? No, I mean I'm, rea- I'm a realist too, uh, but uh, we, the message we are taking there and I, th- I think that after the discussion we would like to hear uh, the, the division which we always see from country that you know wildlife really has no borders. Uh, uh, the, 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 the results we get out of conservation don't have borders. That we really need to stop looking at uh, elephants as Kenyans uh, or Ugandan or Zimbabweans. These are African assets. Among the most contentious proposals up for discussion at the summit is trade in ivory. While some Southern African countries want leeway to sell their stockpiles, the African Elephant Coalition, comprising 29 African countries, want any international commercial trade stopped. Philip Morodi is a Vice President for Species Protection at the African Wildlife Foundation. Expect an ambiguous action, direct and direct action, urgent action, mm-hmm. to stop the, any movement of ivory, any poaching. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't look like Africans are saying one thing and doing something else. Mm. Yes, because you can't point to China, and yet the African governments are not taking the action itself. Focus will also be on China, the world's main ivory consumer. China says it is ready to close its domestic markets. We've seen some movement in China. In fact, right now we don't think that it's it's is is China thinking about it? We are looking at it when it will happen because China has made the decision. They're going to stop the trade rival. We are just waiting to hear when it will happen. So there has been success there, mm-hmm. uh, but we need we can't stop pushing. We can't stop. These are our assets. At least three thousand five hundred delegates are expected to attend the summit. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1992. South Africa's President F.W. de Klerk and ANC President Nelson Mandela end a four-month stalemate over political violence and the structure of a post-apartheid government. That was today in history in the year 1992. <laughs> 
From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. government's top official on Africa does not believe there will be significant policy changes towards the continent despite regional concerns at the prospect of a Republican presidency under Donald Trump. In a broad-ranging roundtable with journalists on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in New York, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs Linda Thomas-Greenfield also touched on sanctions in Zimbabwe, and electoral concerns in the DRC, while heaping praise on several states for the seamless political power transitions that often get less attention in the media. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Linda Thomas-Greenfield says it's a topic that comes up all the time in her bilateral meetings. Donald Trump and his protectionist rhetoric and what that could mean for Africa. Africa is kind of the last frontier and there are people those opportunities are going to be there. And it is the private sector that will uh, be the driver of uh, opportunities for investment uh, on the continent of Africa. And they will engage with policymakers to ensure that our policies support that. So I don't see that there will be any significant diminishment of our commitment to continue to work on the continent of Africa. There will be differences in style. Uh, There will be differences in focus uh, and priorities, and there will be new initiatives. Uh, But I I dare say that uh, when we look at the initiatives that are important to Africa, they cross party lines. She expressed deep concern about protests in the Democratic Republic of Congo over the deferral of elections. We expressed our concerns about the breakdown in in the dialogue recently that led to the violence that we witnessed uh, this week uh, in the DRC. Uh, We think that President Kabila has a historic opportunity to transition uh, for the first time uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo Uh, from one uh, elected head of state uh, to a a second elected head of state. And that's a big deal. And that would be, I think, an extraordinary legacy for, uh, for him. She acknowledged the U.S. Treasury's imposition of targeted sanctions against individuals, including Kinshasa's police chief, who have been involved in violence and intimidation while also urging the government to open up an inclusive dialogue with the opposition to agree on an election date. We all agree uh, that given the very tight time frame that we're under right now, uh, that it's going to be difficult to hold elections by uh, December 17th. But it's not, that's not a decision for, for us to make. It's a decision for all the parties to make. Uh, I understand in the most recent uh, dialogue uh, that they've agreed on some, uh, some dates But the date that was announced by the government of uh, having elections in 2018 uh, was not uh, acceptable to to the opposition. Distinguished delegates... On Zimbabwe, President Robert Mugabe's call for the United States to lift sanctions, which he blamed 
for the economic woes in his country. The economic woes in Zimbabwe are a result of the policies of the Zimbabwean government. They are not a result of our sanctions. They are feeling the effects of the sanctions, and that's why uh, it's part of the uh, talking points uh, that President Mugabe and other leaders from Zimbabwe use, and they uh, uh, try to argue uh, uh, strongly that the sanctions are, are hurting our ordinary people. And that report by Show and Bryce Peace. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you in the headlines. The United Nations, African Union and the European Union are putting pressure on the Democratic Republic of Congo leaders to urge their supporters to refrain from violence. The parliamentary elections in Somalia have been postponed for the second time in two months and Canada has confirmed it's aware of a citizen being taken hostage in Libya. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Anne. The youth wing of South Africa's ruling ANC has challenged Finance Minister Pravin Gordon to divulge whether he has shares in private companies which do business with state-owned enterprises. Speaking after its two-day National Executive Committee meeting in Johannesburg yesterday, the ANC Youth League lambasted Gordon for acting as if he is the only member of government who is fighting crime. It urged him to account to the Hawks about his role with the so-called SARS rogue unit. The league has also thrown its weight behind SABC acting COO Saudi Mutsuening and has also fingered the possible source of the escalating violence at universities over next year's fee increase. Busi Chimombe reports. The ANC Youth League has reiterated that Finance Minister Praveen Gordon is not above the law, saying Gordon is using the media to paint himself as a victim in the public eye over the Hawks investigation. It has taken up the issue first raised by EFF leader Julius Malema earlier this month when he said in Parliament that Gordon had shares in a vast number of companies during a debate on state capture. Gordon has denied these claims. Treasurer General of the League, Rijika Minde, says Gordon, as Finance Minister with fiscal oversight over the SOEs, cannot act as a player and a referee when it comes to the entity's affairs. Go to SAA, go to many SOEs and check who are leading those boards vis-à-vis those members on what they are doing in, in the different private sectors. You will find that Minister Pravin Gordon is involved in many of those companies. And when these accusations were made, one of many companies is a shareholder. He never came out there to dispute that till today. Because we're still expecting him to say, no, 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 I don't own any company in South Africa that is doing any business with SOEs. Why is he not coming out there? The league has also thrown its weight behind SABC acting COO Claudim Mswaneng, urging him to apply to be appointed permanently in the position. This follows reports that the SABC has reappointed Mswaneng as acting CEO after the Supreme Court of Appeal struck down his appointment as COO by Communications Minister Faith Mtambi as irrational. 
The public broadcaster's decision has been slammed in some quarters, with the DA saying it will again take the matter to court. The party says the decision is a slap in the face of the rule of law. League Deputy General Secretary Tandi Murake. The NCU League calls for the SABC to conclude the issue of filling that particular position. We therefore call on the former COO, Comrade Claudi, to apply when the post is being re-advertised. Since we hold a view that the former COO has assisted the SABC greatly in maintaining itself without any bailout from any government. On the funding crisis facing universities, the League says it will not back down on its call for free education and support of the students. It has urged that government be allowed to finish its process to resolve the issue, saying there should be no fees increase at any university next year. President Colin Mayene has deplored the violence that has taken place, which has seen university property destroyed. He is, however, skeptical about who may have planted three petrol bombs that Vitz University says it found at its Bramfontein campus on Saturday. A number of vice councillors and university managers, uh, management in the country, they are quite controversial. It, actually, it, it could actually be them, because uh, we are of the view that uh, some of them are part of this uh, negative agenda, um, um, like uh, the regime change and all of that. So we can't apportion everything that happens. And actually, may, some of them may also be dividing students and funding some to cause this anarchy. So it can't, we can't believe that students, we believe that some of this management must also take responsibility. The League has also grumbled about the attitude of its mother body, which it says must pay more attention to what it says and desist from often ignoring it. And that report by Busi Chimombe. Let's go back in time to today in 1980. The Cuban government abruptly closes Mariel Harbor, ending the freedom flotilla of Cuban refugees into the United States that began the previous April. That was today in history in the year 1980. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Britain's opposition Labour Party has re-elected Jeremy Corbyn to lead the party after a bitter two-month contest. The veteran left-winger, who was first elected a year ago, increased his majority to over 60% of Labour Party members after facing down challenger Owen Smith. Smith won 38% of the vote, but was widely favoured by Labour MPs, who earlier in the summer had overwhelmingly passed a no-confidence vote on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and quit en masse from his front bench team. From London, Catherine Drew reports. I am therefore conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. For Corbyn's supporters, there was jubilation when the results of the leadership contest was announced. Jeremy Corbyn had won nearly 62% of the over half a million votes cast. 
Those included tens of thousands of new members who have made Britain's Labour Party one of the largest socialist movements in Europe. This second win for Jeremy Corbyn gives him a strong mandate to lead Britain's opposition Labour Party, but the strong support he enjoys within the party ranks does not translate to parliamentary MPs who he must now try to win over. Mr. Corbyn used his victory speech to appeal to those Labour MPs to unite what he called the Labour family, so that the party can effectively challenge the ruling Conservative government. Labour is a party brimming full of ideas, of talent, of creativity, and so is this country. Unleashing that potential is the job of all of us. Let us work together for real change in Britain. Thank you very much. Some MPs who quit the shadow cabinet in the summer have indicated they will return to Corbyn's top team. Analysts say there is no appetite for a split of the party, despite deep divisions over policy. Kevin Schofield is editor of PoliticsHome.com. This is about being an effective opposition because you know in the last sort of month or so before the summer recess, Labour weren't an opposition at all. Um, all their talent, as I say, were on the back benches. They were more interested in fighting each other than fighting the government. So the thinking behind this is put your differences with Jeremy Corbyn to one side, focus on your briefs, what the portfolio will be that you'll get, and hold the government to account. Contrary to the hopes of many Labour MPs who thought this leadership contest would weaken Jeremy Corbyn's position, it has only served to strengthen his hand. When the celebrations of his win die down, the hard work must begin to try to unite a fractured Labour Party, which could potentially face a general election as early as this spring, if the Conservatives' Prime Minister Theresa May goes to the polls for a mandate for the Brexit negotiations as Britain prepares to leave the European Union. Catherine Drew, London. Ensuring financing in order to meet the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, is among the top concerns for the Caribbean community CARICOM. This according to the man leading the regional bloc, Secretary General Irvin La Roquet, says CARICOM also wants the region to be counted as a distinct group when it comes to measuring statistical progress towards the 17 goals. The SDGs aim to eradicate extreme poverty, promote greater equality and protect the planet. Diane Penn caught up with La Roquet, who is in New York for the UN General Assembly, which concludes today. Generally speaking, the vulnerabilities that we face as SIDS, they're peculiar to us and other SIDS, and even more so, the work that's being done points that the Caribbean itself among SIDS has certain peculiarities. And we need to be able to address those vulnerabilities in a systemic way. They don't relate to only economic vulnerabilities, so they should not only be measured in terms of GDP uh, per capita or otherwise, but issues that cut across uh, human security and uh, climatic um, and environmental uh, vulnerabilities. And we need to address all of those issues in a very holistic way. We're encouraged that the Sustainable Development Goals recognizes that we must tackle those issues not only on the economic but the environmental and social front. And that has been how we've been p- uh, putting forward the issues of concern to us. And so whether we raise it uh, one or other issue, it always comes back to the vulnerabilities of our region and finding solutions so that we can sustain our, our development. And speaking of finding solutions, I understand CARICOM has a strategic plan covering, I think, the period to 2019. Is that correct? Tell us a little about that plan and what it hopes to uh, achieve. Well, it's precisely what I've been talking about all along. The plan is based on a model recognizing that there are vulnerabilities that need to be addressed. 
We've identified some key uh, strategic uh, areas, the economic, human and social, the issue dealing with uh, ICT, as a matter of fact, as an enabler of development, and um, looking at issues such as security and health and, and the like. It's a plan that coordinates the efforts not only of the Secretariat, but of all of the CARICOM institutions and all of the member states. And it's the first time we've attempted that, and it, we have to do so because we can't solve all the problems at the same time. And the plan sought to identify the, the main priorities. It's early days for us in it. It's, it's showing good signs. There's quite a bit of congruence between the issues we've identified and those uh, in the sustainable development goals. So we're hoping that the work that will be done within the community as well as the work we're doing with the international community will help us to advance that agenda in addressing uh, our issues. And now speaking about the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, we're in year one of them. I guess it's kind of too early because we have until mm-hmm. 2030 to achieve them, but how are nations um, working on achieving these goals? Well, I don't think we're going to be able to address all of those goals. There's so many targets, mm-hmm. that's the first thing. And again, we've prioritized many issues. It doesn't mean that those that we've not prioritized are not urgent or important, so we will be working on, on all of them, but I think it's going to be a daunting task. We have two major concerns. One is how do you finance all that has to be done to achieve those targets? And another major concern is the data, baseline data, statistics, to measure where we are and how we're making progress. In the UN system, we tend to be um, cast in the terms of Latin America and the Caribbean. And given the fact that we have these peculiarities that relate to us, we're actually urging the UN system to begin to do their data sets for the Caribbean. Unless we have that ability to um, look at our data to inform policy and inform decision-making, we may not go as fast as we want to. So I'm hoping that the UN system will work with us on addressing some of those issues which will allow us better to attain those goals. The Caribbean is a small region, but it is incredibly diverse. What do you think the Caribbean can teach the rest of the world? Well, first of all, the Caribbean is diverse, but it's common. And no matter if you speak French or you speak English, there's a common legacy that's there that makes us Caribbean people. As Prime Minister Gonzalez always says, we're a Caribbean civilization, and I think we have to recognize it for what it is. We are unique. We can teach the world how to survive. We can teach the world democracy. We are among the first democracies in the world. And it's sometimes a little bit um, difficult when persons try to preach to us about democracy when we have such a long history and legacy of parliamentary democracy. Um, We're friendly, warm people. And uh, I dare say to you that per capita, the number of um, Nobel laureates that we produce is only an, an inclination of what are the kinds of skills and the abilities of our Caribbean people. If we could only harness all of that towards our challenges, I think we're on our way. That was Urban Laurake, Secretary General of the Caribbean Community, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. Our economic update up next with Tabisa Lohoku. Despite its electoral decline in the last local government elections, South Africa's ruling party, the ANC, has assured ratings agency Moody's that its policies will remain unchanged. The Global Credit Rating Agency met with the governing party after holding its annual South Africa Credit Risk Conference in Johannesburg. Debo Mokoba reports. The Global Credit Rating Agency Moody's is in the country for the second time this year. 
High on its list of concerns is whether the ANC will opt to change the country's policy direction to appease voters after its decline in support following the August 3rd local elections. But after a day-long meeting with the governing party, Moody's appears satisfied at the ANC's assurance that there will be no policy change to win voters. Iran has, for the first time, introduced a credit card. Authorities say the country is seeking to bolster its oil production and economy after world powers lifted sanctions against the Islamic Republic in January. This was in return for Tehran complying with the deal to curb its nuclear ambitions. The central bank has cautioned it could take some time for the banks to get used to the credit card system. Tunisia has reached a deal with the protesters who have disrupted gas production by a Petrofac for months. Petrofac, which supplies 13% of Tunisia's gas through the Chegui Venture in the south, officially informed the government this week that it had started shutting down its local gas operations. President of South Africa's largest trade federation, Kusatu Stumotamene, says if the Financial Intelligence Center Amendment Bill is meant to curb corruption, everyone, including banks, should be subjected to this legislation. Lamini explains. Why are they always quiet when banks are repossessing workers' houses? Workers' houses are being repossessed when they miss three or four months because they have been retrenched. The bank can't understand that. It simply takes away the house. Why is speaker not investigating that corruption? It is corruption. Let it be practiced, this thing of investigating across everyone who is doing it. Crude prices have rebounded after Algeria said that all options were possible for an Iranian oil output or freeze at this week's informal meeting of OPEC producers. This came after prices tumbled 4% on Friday amid signs that the Saudi Arabia and Iran were making little progress in achieving preliminary agreement to freeze production. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.67 to the South African rand, at 10.29 in Botswana, 10 in Zambia, 7.7 to the British pound, 8.9 euro, gold 1,000, dollars platinum 1,000, dollars pounds, brand crude 4.5 dollars, 5.2 cents a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we betting off with cricket news. Temba Wavuma completed a fine debut century before J.P. Duminis Nabdik career-best bowling figures as South Africa cruised to a 206-run win over Ireland in the one-of-one-day international at Sahara Park Widow Moor in Benoni on Sunday. Bavuma became only the second South African to score a debut ODI century and he reached three figures of 110 balls with 12 fours and a six before being dismissed for 113 off 123 deliveries with 13 fours and a six as South Africa posted a formidable 354 for five after being asked to bet. 
of spinner Dumini then claimed four for 16 of 4.5 overs to complete a fine all-round performance after his 50 during South Africa's innings as Ireland crumbled to 148 all-out of 30.5 overs. In football news, it's not a secret that Bafana Bafana head coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba and his bosses at Safa, the relationship is at an all-time low. Safa president Denny Jordan was on record saying he's not happy with the performance of the main senior national football team following the one-all draw with Mauritania earlier this month. Mashaba has selected a 25-man strong squad that will do duty against Burkina Faso in the first game of the third and the final round of the 2018 World Cup qualifier at Stade du Four out in Ouagadougou on the 8th of next month. Mashaba's response on whether he's got the full support of his bosses was very interesting. What do you expect me to say? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, on a serious note, what we request, yes, we do get, especially flying to and fro, we do go, we honor matches. Those are the kind of support that we would look for, definitely sure. But uh, I I don't know whether that is enough for your question, but I wouldn't answer you more beyond that. Those are some of the things that we need to direct to the office of the CEO, I think. The Stallions of Begina Faso are fresh from qualifying for next year's AFCON in Gabon. They had a 100% winning record at home. They topped Group D with 13 points, level with Uganda at the top and also fell at the last hurdle in the 2014 World Cup qualifiers. On the road, they could only beat Comores, lost to Botswana and drew with Uganda. Mashaba knows that only good planning would get them through. Those are the, 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 the most difficult parts of uh, some technical and tactical approaches of other teams. People will come and sit back, put all 10 players in front of their, uh, their goals. But we are working on that and uh, we have uh, shown that we can. Question of combination in front of the opposition's big box, that's going to be a biggest, uh, what you call, for us. Because if we're going to play, obviously, long balls, direct balls, it won't be easy. We have heard that that's what one they do. Actually, it's not only Burkina Faso. I mean, uh, just to take you back, we played Gambia at home here. They frustrated us. We drew 0-0 in the qualifiers. We went to them, and then we beat them four. So it shows that... Uh, the, the, the different types of approach in this football differ. It only needs you to sit down and plan accordingly and say this is the road we're taking. And finally, with golf news, Alex Levy has won the Porsche European Open in Germany for his third tour victory. He finished on 19 under par in a tournament reduced to 54 holes, but needed two more holes to defeat Ross Fischer in a playoff. Nick Dye reports. It's been a difficult time for the Frenchman since two victories in 2014 in China and Portugal. He missed some three months because of a wrist injury, but he bounced back to form in Italy last week and he started with rounds of 62 and 63 to take a four-strokes advantage into the final round of an event shortened because of fog delays. He started at the start of the round but had a three-stroke advantage with three to play until faltering again. Yet a 25-foot birdie putt at the second extra hole claimed the win over a former European Open winner who'd shot a 64 to close. The Swedes Robert Carlson and Michael Jonsson share third, while Ryder Cup-bound home favourite Martin Keimer feels good about his form in sixth position. That's the Sport News this hour.
Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Concerns over worsening humanitarian situation in Lake Chad Basin. Burundians reject United Nations report on human rights and controversy erupts in Lesotho over government's new fleet contract. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.ca.today or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Zama Jobe with a song titled Warza.